Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to Real Talk with Zuby. This is Lewis Thomas. He is a cryptocurrency enthusiast, investor, an awesome thinker, and an awesome YouTuber. Welcome to the show, Lewis. Hey there, Zuby. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. That's awesome, man. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I've been doing my my kind of usual routine of I did some videos this morning and one of the little kind of little perks of being a YouTuber is that I get to play around with some products and platforms that companies send me and stuff. So I've been playing around with those today and uh, yeah, she's been pretty chilled. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks, man. Very well. Um, you know, to anyone listening, we've been spending the past half hour just trying to <laughs> trying to get the sound working on this thing, but we have managed to do it. We so got there. Yeah, it'll be it, worth it. I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> it took two uh, two technical, intelligent brains to get it working, but we did it. <laughs> That's cool, man. So um, I first came across your videos on YouTube, actually. So you've been putting out videos on cryptocurrency, I think, since 2017. Is that right? Yeah, I've actually been making videos a little longer than that. I I kind of touched on a broad range of topics, really. But there was a day, there was a moment, really, the beginning of 2017, when I started making content about cryptocurrencies. And it, it took off. The views the demand for it became crazy. And so I just naturally kind of shifted in that direction. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, I think I saw some of those earlier videos. You had some stuff on like um, <laughs> cannabis legalization, I think, <laughs> and uh, some some more political stuff, some stuff about universities and all that. Absolutely. So, yeah, basically everything that YouTube discourages. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> demonetized, yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did you first come across cryptocurrency and what was it that first attracted you to it so i'd have to take you back to 2016 and um, towards the end of that year i'd developed a quite a large interest in psychedelics actually um mm -hmm. came really really interested on a strictly academic level of course and um <laughs> <laughs> i 
I, I was obsessed. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy called Terence McKenna. I'm not. No, who's that? No, he's absolutely fantastic. Uh, kind of thinker, philosopher who touched on psychedelics. He has one of my all-time favorite books called Food of the Gods, which okay. I would highly recommend anyone to read about the historical significance of psychedelics and the impact they've had on culture mm -hmm. for thousands of years, actually. And there's some pretty crazy theories. There's a theory called the Stone Ape. And it, the idea is that our ancestors, one of the ways in which they were able to rapidly grow the size of their brains was our ancestors in the kind of sub-Saharan Africa. They accidentally ate psychedelic mushrooms that grew on the kind of manure of animals. And okay. it was through this kind of accidental occurrence that our brain development rapidly occurred. Alan Watts as well, who's another fantastic Eastern philosopher. And I was just hungry for more knowledge and insights about this. So I was searching online other kind of resources, podcasts. Someone recommended Joe Rogan, who, oh, of yeah. course, now is a household name, less, <laughs> less so in 2016. Um, but I just began consuming his content. And then one day, just by chance, I happened to stumble upon a podcast with him and a gentleman called Andreas Antonopoulos, okay, who yeah, yeah. you might be aware with. Yeah. And he, of course, is the Bitcoin guy. He's pretty much most people's introduction to Bitcoin. And so I just gave it a chance. I'd, I'd been vaguely familiar with this Bitcoin thing, but didn't know much about it. And uh, the second I heard that podcast, it was just magic. There was just a light bulb moment that went off. And from that point, I was hooked. And, and yeah. I have been ever since. That's awesome, man. So what was it particularly about Bitcoin that drew you in? Because I've spent quite a lot of time, especially over the past year, just trying to explain the concept to people and why I think it's extremely valuable. You know, you've got a lot of people who just think it's silly internet money. And I was one of those people. I think I legitimately first heard about Bitcoin probably around 2011, 2012. And I did no research into it, which uh, makes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a computer science graduate. Oh no, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I'm a computer science graduate. So <gasps> I, I, you know what I mean? I'm not like super duper into my techie stuff because I'm more of a musician these days. You know, I just, I'd heard the name, I'd heard the term Bitcoin, but I'd never really looked at it the way I, I just assumed it was just literally, I mean, it is a, it is a form of digital money, but I thought it was just like, uh, I, I don't know, just like uh, something that you'd use to buy tokens in a in a video game or something like that. You know what I mean? I just didn't I didn't do the proper research. No one sat down and explained it as in like, okay, this is it. This is why it's valuable. This is the whole concept. It's limited. You can't just make as much of it as you want. Like the whole the whole way Bitcoin works, I didn't understand until towards the end of 2017 when I actually sat down and bothered to do some research. So like a lot of other people, that was a moment when I kind of kicked myself because the way I am you know, I'm quite a libertarian-minded person, for example. So yeah. the whole the whole notion of having like a decentralized currency that is trustless, that's global, that's limited, that's deflationary. I was like, like I didn't need that much convincing. I was like, <laughs> I was like, where, where where do I get this? Like, this sounds yeah. this sounds awesome. So yeah, I kicked myself a little bit for not investigating it properly, but that's how these things are. Yeah, well, that's the thing, actually, is because for me, what's so incredibly interesting about it. Is, is the fact that it's, it's so all-encompassing and that it does bring in politics, it does bring in economics, investing. These were all things that I had a general interest in anyway. Mm. And being so lucky as to have my first real exposure about Bitcoin from Andreas is that he was able to tap into all of this in such a brilliant way for three hours with Joe Rogan. 
And that's what's quite unfortunate about people, especially in kind of late 2017, their first interaction with Bitcoin is normally through some hype beast YouTuber <laughs> who just tells you about all these coins that are going to the moon and you don't even know why, but you want to jump on board, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're on a miss out on the 10X. And so Andreas was able to outline the enormous significance about this. And you say yourself, coming from a more kind of libertarian perspective, what was interesting to you about that? Mm -hmm. While as myself, I'm actually from a more kind of left-wing perspective. And so you can, your perception, you, you can place that on top of Bitcoin and what it can do and what its significance is. And so for me, uh, along with the kind of deflationary aspects and stuff that you told about, it was also the way it kind of empowers people, how it takes the power of currency and the power of issuing currency, which is tremendously significant and impacts almost every aspect of society. Mm. That's in the hands of the people versus the central bankers. Yeah. And, and the fact that you just have this great tool that will hopefully bring financial access to the digital world and the financial world to billions of people, I just thought was unbelievable. As well, yeah. of course, you know, without being you're on a virtual signal or anything, it's also for the, <laughs> for the mad gains, right? Of the course, the right. fact that it's the potentially most amazing investment that someone could ever possibly embark on as well, that kind of helps with motivation of wanting to get on board with it. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, I'm an evil capitalist. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, yeah, depending on your timing, though, your experience in results would have certainly varied over the past two years. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's... It's, it's like everything, isn't it? Timing, yeah. unfortunately, is everything. It doesn't matter. You could be doing the right thing at the wrong time. And to me, that's really hit home with crypto because I was lucky. I got in at a fabulous time. Yeah. <laughs> and I really did when I didn't know all too much. And when I made, you know, to give you an example, I made my best ever investment in cryptocurrencies to this day, basically in my first ever investment. I managed to buy a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. Mm -hmm. I managed to buy a bunch of it for less than $10. Ooh. And I didn't know too much about it. And, and for those who don't know, that was at the start of 2017, thereabouts. And by the end of 2017, it was $1,400. Yeah. You know, <laughs> quick bit of math, that's 100 <laughs> yeah, it's insane. and something times your money. So. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane. There's a guy I, there's a guy I follow on uh, Twitter and on YouTube who, man, I wish I discovered earlier, but I mean, he had, video, he had videos up when ethereum was at one dollar literally oh. literally explaining why it was such a great investment and yeah. you know properly laying out the case like the video is still up there it's from like 2015 and he's like yeah you know it's gone up to one dollar now but i think it's still got a lot of room for growth and i'm just watching it like goodness me <laughs> is, is, is it that da vinci dude is it da vinci uh, no this was a uh, tommy world power oh, okay yeah founder of energy crypto yeah so I was just going back on all his previous videos, and I was like, "Why could I not have stumbled across that?" <laughs> like, it's, like, it's brilliant. Like, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's several of these channels, and they're just kind of ranting and raving about Bitcoin all these years back. And you look at the comments; people call them nuts, they call them insane, deluded, <laughs> and you just look where they are now, and they're these people who are just multi multi millionaires, and it's just yeah. incredible. Yeah, man. So I, we can't talk about crypto without talking about the the past year, the ongoing. The ongoing bear market. To anybody who's not involved in cryptocurrency, the entire market has dropped by about 80, 80 to 90 percent. It went up to about 830 billion market cap. Everyone was ready for it to zoom past one trillion. <laughs> everyone, everyone had the you know 50k, 100k Bitcoin. The entirety of last year just dropped and dropped and dropped. And to anyone invested, um, Lewis and I can both vouch that it was. It was it was painful. 
it's impossible to understate how brutal it's been. Yeah. It really has. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, just to give people an idea who might not be familiar with me, I put my life savings, everything I had in the crypto in the beginning of 2017. And so so seeing that and seeing the great rise in 2017 and then seeing that collapse by 18, 90% in 2018, it's pretty rough. It's, <laughs> it is. It is. Pretty uh, rough going. I think the roughest part, the roughest part for me personally was around middle of the year. Cause yeah. I, I had a period where I was really debating like, okay, do I, do I cut my losses or do I, do I just hang in there? Like I, I did, I did, you know, decide to just hang in there and uh, I'm still hanging in there, but, <laughs> but each time, cause, cause it just, you kept thinking, okay, it must, it must've, it must stop now. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, 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 you know, I can't go lower. It went, it went from, it went from 20,000 down to 6,000 and then stuck at 6,000 for several months. It's like, okay, 6,000, that's a big drop. 20,000 to 6,000, like that's enough. And then boom, it just <laughs> dro- dro- it cut in, cut in half, almost cut in half. I was just like, wow, <laughs> this is a real baptism by fire. But in a weird way, I think maybe that was the best introduction for me. It's weird because I've, I've read loads of in- investing books in the past, including some of the ones that are the most recommended. And it's really, really funny with investing because you read all this stuff about people buying high and selling low, getting caught up in FOMO both ways. And I'm an extremely rational and level-headed guy. Like I'm really not someone who lets my emotions get the better of me. And so I was like, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Like I'm too, (laughs) you you know what I mean? I was like, I'm immune to that. Like I'm not someone who gets irrational and drawn in by my emotions. And after last year, I was like, you know what? Like, I didn't even know that could. <laughs> I didn't. Well, <laughs> one, I didn't know that was possible in an asset class for it to move so quickly. And then two, like, wow, I really um, broke every investing rule that I already knew. So it was a. Uh, I don't think it's something that's now that it's happened. I don't think it's something that can happen to me again. So like, <laughs> it's it's certainly a good learning lesson in that way. And then at this stage, you know, we're we're both smiling, we're both laughing now. It's it's reached that stage where to me like I I have to just laugh at it because like, yeah. I think I think either you find the funny side or you just go you just go crazy and wanna and wanna do something harmful to yourself or someone else. <laughs> the, the thing about crypto though, uh, at, at any given point, is that it's all it's all time dependent. Yeah. So you can say on the one hand you got in late, whatever the word late means. Mm-hmm. But then you look at it on a wider picture and you think, okay, you're taking part in actually a, a cutting edge technology that's gone through several hype cycles. And we're, my personal contention is that we're still at the very early stage of this. We're still at a, a, the, the most generous estimates so that we're about 1% global adoption right now, which means that we have an awful, awful long way to go. And, and it would be my contention that even the people who got on board at the absolute peak in mm-hmm. 2017, ultimately are, are just early investors. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I'd be surprised if it's even as high as 1%. Yeah. 1% actually sounds quite high to me if you consider the 7.75 billion people in the world. I'm not convinced that 1% of them have any significant crypto holdings. No, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I'm actually angry I didn't just delay it a bit so I could have bought like five times as much. That's what. That's actually what I kick myself for. It's actually not that I think in the long term, I made a bad investment. I just think like, oh, had I held my horses a little bit and waited for it to take the beating, 
And then, and then, the, the thing is, though, it's it's too difficult to call. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, you can read all the investment advice in the world in the kind of traditional world, and this is something I've I've studied for several years as well. I remember on my 18th birthday, I was given a copy of The Intelligent Investor, mm-hmm. which is the Benjamin Graham book, which Warren Buffett considers his favorite book. So I feel like I would say I have a, a decent grasp of, of traditional uh, investing concepts as well. But with the price action in crypto and and the parabolic advances in the prices it's incredibly difficult to apply those concepts because if you were to take back to my example, when I put my life savings in, in the very beginning of 2017, all logic would dictate that by the time you two extra money, you take out most of it or you take out half or when you five extra money or 10 extra money. But if I'd done that, I would have sold myself short because actually I made more than a hundred times my money in that (laughs) bull run. Right. And, yeah. and it's, it's the case time and time again with crypto. What you have is an order of magnitude advance with the price of, of, of what any given cryptocurrency, followed by a bear market where you get a 80 to 90 percent correction. Mm-hmm. That has been the cycle time and time again since 2011. Yeah, it's, it's just you can't be too rough on yourself because more people have lost money in crypto by selling too soon overall than people who have kind of bought in too late. There are more people right now who are kicking themselves that they sold when they 10x their money when Bitcoin was $100. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more money to be made than there is to be lost when you're in such a young industry. And so I don't think anyone should be too hard on themselves. Yeah, no, I think once you zoom out and you look at the long-term perspective, then it puts you at ease, assuming you do genuinely believe in the technology and the fundamentals. If you don't, you know, that's another that's another situation entirely. So for somebody who is listening to this and who is just curious about Bitcoin or curious about cryptocurrency, as someone who's been in it for quite a while now, in the, well, relative to most people, what do you think are the biggest selling points? So if I knew nothing about crypto and you were trying to sell it to me or just trying to explain to me why you're interested in it, what would be your key points? Like, what's the point of this thing? How is it valuable? The, the number one most valuable aspect of cryptocurrencies is censorship resistance. That means that it's a type of money, digital, that no government, no bank, nobody can actually take from you. It is yours and yours alone. So the money that I have in crypto, there's not a single person on this planet other than myself who can access this. And this is tremendously valuable, both as a kind of store of value and as a form of individual sovereignty. You see around the world at the moment, there's a lot of fear around freedom of speech, freedom of thought, mm-hmm. and you're seeing people's finances and their livelihoods being affected as a result of this. These people who have controversial ideas, controversial opinions, right now in a highly centralized financial system, they can be shut down in a moment. They can have their PayPal access revoked. They can have their bank accounts revoked. And it's quite scary to, to yeah. me and to anyone, really. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. The idea that someone can shut you down, you can be kind of unpersoned in an Orwellian sense, is absolutely terrifying. And so the idea of kind of freedom of speech and individual sovereignty, for me, is one of the key selling points. And also, kind of related to that, is the storage of value aspect to it. Right now, um, approximately $7 trillion is stored in gold as pretty much not much else other than a store of value. That is a means of which people can retain their wealth. And part of the reason why people do this is because right now our inflationary monetary system that we have, 
people, typically working class people or regular people who don't own huge amounts of real estate, huge amounts of stocks and whatever else, their entire livelihood is kept in an inflationary model where the value of their savings depletes at anywhere between three to five to six, seven percent every single year at a compounding rate. And so right now, the world lacks a means for regular people to actually store their wealth in a way that doesn't degrade every single year. And to me, that's an immensely powerful tool as well. Yeah, I agree on both of those points. In regards to the second one, do you think that there, however, is an inherent danger of the same thing happening with Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency? So just like when it comes to, uh, say, something like gold, certainly when people were allowed to personally own large amounts of it, you could always get wealthy individuals who just you know corner a huge amount of the market and own a huge amount of it. Don't you think the same thing could happen with Bitcoin, either from a private individual perspective or even from a government perspective? So the exact people who the Bitcoin kind of is fighting against. A lot of people think, for example, there's loads of manipulation going on in the market, and maybe there's even actors who are crashing the market so that they can scoop up a ton of it with their billions that are sitting on the side, and then they'll kind of own the market and have it cornered. Is there a way to get around that, do you think? No, and that's fine. There is absolute rampant manipulation. There's all sorts of dodgy shenanigans happening in the space right now, but that is a product of free markets that are not held back by any kind of regulation at all. It is Mm. the wild, wild west. It is the form of ultimate freedom With all the new amazing possibilities that you get with crypto, you also get the negatives as well. And so Mm. even though we'll live in a world with a lot more freedom, that means that bad actors have that same freedom to do much more harm as well. It's just an unfortunate aspect of life that in an ideal world, you would have regulators without corruption. But Mm -hmm. what we've seen in 21st century is that that's not possible. And so our only option is to go in in a completely unregulated financial world. We're almost going to go back to many of the issues that people had in the time in America where we had a gold standard, for instance. Um, But that's just what it is. It's new opportunities that come with new problems. Yeah. Do you think that there's a space for cryptocurrency banks or holding companies? Or do you think that kind of takes away from the entire purpose? Yeah, that's that to me is the amazing thing about cryptocurrency is that people will have choice. Mm. I think there absolutely will be crypto banks, if you want to call it that, for people who don't want who don't want the responsibility of of taking full control and taking full responsibility of their funds. Because right now in this day and age, if you lose your money, if your credit card gets stolen, something like that, you can call up the bank and they'll kind of redress that for you. Mm. There is nothing of that sort in crypto. If you lose access to your keys, that's it, you're stuffed. And there's actually a guy who doesn't live too far away from me, is a kind of well-known case in Bitcoin. He lost the equivalent of about $10 million worth of Bitcoin because he lost the hard drive on his computer that stole oh, his private keys. Is that the guy who wanted to go through the entire landfill? That's get... right. Okay, yeah, yeah, I did. I actually read about that in, in a newspaper or something like that. Yeah. You can't have the penny in the bun, so to speak. If people really want freedom and, and sovereignty and control over their lives as much as they say they do, mm-hmm. then they're going to have to live with the responsibilities and the consequences of that, which, yeah. which I think is absolutely fine. I think that's welcome. Yeah, no, I think it... It's interesting. I do think it appeals very much to a certain type of person. Like I said, I've been having these conversations with a lot of people. I mean, even down to the idea of having a censorship resistant money 
and having something that people can't confiscate. A lot of people are sort of of the opinion that, oh, well, I'm not a criminal. I don't need to worry about anything. I like yourself, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a criminal either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I also do have some concerns. I, I guess, I don't know if it's like ethical or ideological of this notion of just being able to, whether it's deplatform or unperson or demonetize uh, an entire human being, you know what I mean? Like if someone is, I'm not a fan of loads of ideas and thoughts, but there's something disturbing to me about not being able to open a bank account or receive payments or whatever, because you have some ideas that some people don't agree with. I mean, what next? Should we be cutting off your water? Should we be cutting yeah. off your electricity? Should you I saw someone on Twitter say something like, should Republicans be allowed to use roads? Which, uh. I, thought was, <laughs> which, which I thought was quite funny. I mean, it, it sounds funny, but you know, these things do tend to, if you look at history, certainly I think if you're a student of history, you do see how these things can encroach. You know, they'll start with the people who nobody would want to defend. And then, you know, who knows who's going to be the next target. The smaller you make the pool of acceptable opinion, you're always going to have people who are technically on an extreme end of it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing a lot of, I don't know about you, but I am quite disturbed about what we're seeing in the wider economy and in the news right now, this this division, this polarity, this animosity between various groups of people. Mm. And what's really interesting is that people are wondering where this is all coming from to some extent. And it actually has a strong correlation with the economy and, and the kind of economic circumstances of our time as well. Mm. There's a fantastic article by a man called Ray Dalio, who's one of the top kind of hedge fund guys. And he's talked about the link between the rise of populism and long-term debt cycles. Okay. So, so this is what we saw kind of last century. If you think about the Great Depression in 1929, the kind of economic hardships around the world, the years and decades following that, and that's where you saw the rise of fascism. That's where you saw the rise of Mussolini, Hitler. And it's no coincidence. And what he's saying is that this century now, we're actually approaching another, the end of another long-term debt cycle. We're seeing huge inequality, which has also been spurred by the way central banks have conducted themselves over the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way that they've grossly inflated assets that make people feel resentful at someone, whether it's the government or immigrants, or you, you can put kind of X on it. Sure, It has this strong relationship to uh, economic inequality, which for me is why going back to Bitcoin, why this thing is so beautiful, because it actually helps to resolve many of the social issues, which you wouldn't think has any kind of real relationship to it, but it does. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's something that's really interesting, because I can, I can easily understand from a libertarian freedom fighter kind of mentality, why someone would be big on Bitcoin. But I think that regardless of someone's personal political views or affiliations, you know, I think there's a case to make on sort of all sides of the spectrum for why Bitcoin or perhaps another cryptocurrency or loads of them have value and have a use case. Absolutely. Yeah. As I said earlier, you, you can project onto Bitcoin whatever you want, which is the wonderful thing about it. Mm. And what's also wonderful about Bitcoin equally is that it doesn't care what your ideology is. It's open finance that's available to the most extreme left, to the most extreme right. If you want to enjoy the benefits of Bitcoin, you have to accept the fact that your enemies do as well, which mm -hmm. is, again, another wonderful aspect about it.
Yeah. I think it would be good for everybody as well if we stopped viewing each other as enemies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I think that's yeah. that that entire word kind of concerns me. Oftentimes people talk about enemies and I'm like, I don't think I have any enemies. Like there might be a couple people out there who I've never met who probably think they don't like me because they think they know me, but they actually don't. But um when I think of the real world, I'm like, no, there's some there's some ideas and concepts out there that I don't like, but I don't think I have any enemies per se. I think, yeah. that, you know, in the in the bigger scheme of thing, I think that's, uh, you touched on it already. I think it's become very apparent. I mean, it's been quite rapid. I'd say over the past two to three years, this division, both in the, in the UK, in the USA, in Europe, you're, you know, there's so many different factors involved, but there is a rising tide of not just division, but hostility, you know? Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with people having different viewpoints on stuff. Some of them are going to be opposite. Some of them, it's going to be a little bit difficult to reconcile, right? If you've got some people who want taxes to be higher and you've got another opposite group who wants taxes to be lower, it's a little bit difficult to completely satisfy both of those groups. But I think at the end of the day, whatever country you're in, or just living in the entire world, it's like, you know what, we've all got to get on, you know? I don't think yeah. thinking that the person who lives down your street is a Nazi because they voted you red, <laughs> because they voted red and you voted blue. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact you've probably gotten on well for the past 20 years, you know, you heard these stories of people, you know, divorcing their spouses or relationships breaking down after the 2016 election or and that that goes for both Brexit and Trump. And I'm just kind of reading these stories. I'm like, what's wrong with people, man? Like, it's not that deep. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I'm just, I'm like, it's, oh. it's really awful. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get better. I think it is only going to get worse. Mm. And I think it's because it's so strongly tied to the economic hardships that people face. I, I think people are really struggling, not just in the UK, US, but around the world right now. Mm. And unfortunately, I, I feel it's... It's scary how much it just feels like, well, not that I was around in the 1930s, but from what you read, yeah, it just yeah. feels like the rise of the 1930s all over again, which yeah. which, which scares me. It really yeah, does. No, I understand that. One thing I think is weird is, you know, what you just said about economic hardship. Don't you think it's weird that we've kind of got this juxtaposition, though, where people feel that? But if you look historically and globally, we're in such a good situation in the grand scheme of things like the world is richer than it's ever been and there's actually less poverty according to any form of united nations measurements or anything like that there's far less people living in poverty than there ever were before in human history so it's weird that you've got this juxtaposition where kind of both of these things seem to be true that's kind of weird i'm not i haven't kind of worked that out in my brain yet no you're absolutely right that's true but we have our own kind of very modern, unique problems that people didn't even have the time to really you know, think about back then. It's the people have a, a difficulty with their own existence. And what is the point in such a complex modern world where you're just one of kind of eight, nine, 10 billion people, whatever it is, understanding what kind of to do with your life and, mm. and what anything means. I think people have a really tough time trying to find meaning in a lot, a lot of these things. Yeah, just the nature of, of people don't really know what their role is anymore in such an enormously complicated world. Maybe a couple of thousand years ago, it was just you and your tribe. You were just focusing on surviving, and mm -hmm. that was that. And if you could have, if you could find yourself a nice animal to catch and to kill, and, and you had another day of surviving, 
that was it and you were completely content with that but in an age of abundance of of you know food no one starves anymore people just don't know what to to do with themselves and they don't know how to make sense of some some of the ills in society that we're yet to deal with as well this is even going to be more of an issue as heading into the future with automation mm. uh, i'm i'm gravely concerned about people's attitudes and how they deal with a large number of jobs being lost to, to kind of robots and to self-driving cars i don't know it's going to be a new problem for humanity how to deal with this abundance of free time yeah here's a question do you think um something like self-driving cars and overall automation see i'm kind of in two minds about this and i can i can really understand both cases there's the whole free market capitalism you know really in this case globalism side which would just argue if the robots can do it cheaper, then let's just automate everything. Let's use the robots. If we put people out of work, then so be it. There's sort of that argument. And then like in terms of my general philosophy, that's where I would normally naturally lean. However, in this specific case, I do also think, you know what? It's not like Capital free market capitalism is not a it's not like a top down doctrine. You know, I don't think it's good to have any super hard ideology. To me, it's more like this is a guideline that to me makes sense for the vast majority of situations. However, there's a strong case that you know what that's going to put so many people out of work and cause so much disruption that it should just be regulated or halted or slowed down. I don't know what you think of that. Well, this is where my more left-wing opinions and ideas would kind of bleed into this because for me, I think we should absolutely embrace and and push for greater automation. Okay. So long as you can provide a kind of and this is where we maybe get into the topic of universal basic income or something that allows people to have a basic existence. Mm. Um Milton Friedman, a kind of prominent capitalist, very pro-free market uh, thinker, he even said if it was just about jobs, then people would dig holes with spoons rather than spades. I don't think that we as a society should be so emotionally attached to the idea of a job if that doesn't have to be the case. The whole point of technology is to make life easier for humans and to relieve them of burdens they wouldn't have to otherwise deal with. Mm -hmm. But so far, maybe because we're so attached to certain systems and the way things have been, people seem to want to kind of keep life more difficult than it needs to be. And to me, I don't see why we should keep people in jobs if they could be relieved of that burden. Quite honestly, I've never really enjoyed any job I've had that much. What about the one you do right now? I wouldn't even consider that a job. Well, car- okay, career. So maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. You, you've got a good point there. You know, I'm not, I'm not employed. I have a lot of freedom. I have a lot of kind of spare time really to pursue what I love, which is wonderful. And I want other people to enjoy the benefits of that as well. Mm. I understand that. However, considering what you just said about five minutes ago about lack of meaning, yeah, I think that what gives a lot of people their meaning, whether or not they recognize it directly, is you know their job, their work, the value they're creating, what they're contributing to society, whether you're working in a coffee shop or digging ditches or making music or whatever. I think that there's a danger of compounding that pre-existing problem, which we've both kind of acknowledged by actually taking even more people out of work 
and then giving them money. I feel like everybody needs money. We all need money to live. But I think in terms of a in terms of a deeper meaning, a purpose, a responsibility, I think the the idea of inputting work and money being the output, I think the I think that input part is actually really, really important. So yeah, you don't want to dig a dig a tunnel with a, a spoon or anything like that. Yeah. But I think people being gainfully employed and feeling like they're contributing something and then getting something back from it. I think that whole notion is actually very deeply important. I mean, I do personally think, I think there's a lot of reasons for the rise of mental health problems and depression and suicide and self-harm and all that, particularly in the Western world. And I do think, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but I do think one of them is that point of people just losing their meaning, you know, people not being sure, okay, what what am I here for? You know, it's, it's comes also to, I know you're not yourself a religious person, but I think also it is connected to people, less people being religious. Cause if you are religious, your purpose on earth is it's there, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite clear. You don't then go and seek what the meaning is. Cause it's like, okay, like this is, this is it. So as people move away from that, it's, it's something I've been thinking a lot, quite a lot recently. I feel even people who are not religious a lot of non-religious people don't like me saying this but i think a lot i think everybody almost has a religious core so whether or not that's filled by a what most people would refer to as a religion or not i think it's very natural and normal and almost in our dna for human beings to want to seek seek the answers that science can't answer shall we say like yeah. no no matter how advanced we get science isn't going to tell us what's the meaning of life, right? It's it's never going to be able to answer that question. So you've kind of got that other plane, which you t- again coming back to what you touched on earlier with psychedelics and things like that, which seem to be able to produce religious experiences for people. So you know you'll get people who are atheistic, but they're still seeking that experience or spirituality or people people use different words. Yeah. Um, but I think that to me that's something that over the past couple of years it's kind of just as I've been talking to more and more people, it's kind of starting to, I don't yet have a completely clear picture, but it's kind of coming down to me. You know, as I speak to different people, I'll talk to someone who says they don't believe in God, but then I'll be like talking to them more and more. And it's like, there's still something there that they're like, I don't know, either worshiping directly in some, in some cases, quite obvious, right? You, You see this a lot with people who get very militant about, I mean, you get, you get militant atheists, for example, yeah, to the, to the point where, their atheism almost becomes a religion. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's very bizarre. People are militant about their diets. You've got the whole carnivores. You've got, <laughs> you've got, you've got vegans. Yeah. And some of the, you know, they go out in the street and they've got their own, they've got almost their, their own rituals. And I'm kind of like, that's, that's pretty close to a religion to me. No, I would absolutely agree. And, and you know, these concepts are slippery and it is, it's hard to know what language to use at times. But I would absolutely agree that I think for most people, they, they need some kind of meaning in their life. And what the, the manner in which that manifests itself is different. That's personal to everyone. But I think everyone craves being part of something bigger. And as yeah. you said, for some people, that outlet is feminism or veganism, as you said. Yeah. Um, and kind of going back to UBI in this kind of jobless world, mm. people can go one of two ways. People can either fall into a pit of dark, 
nihilism where they just kind of drink and take drugs and be miserable all day. Yeah. Or they can potentially, if hopefully in a kind of more ideal scenario for me, I would like to think people have more time to devote themselves to these causes. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're religious, they can have more time to help people, more time to help the homeless, more time to care for their families, more time to pursue their interests. If they're creative, they can create more music. Mm. Uh, to me, that's a more idyllic scenario. But it all depends because I, I ultimately don't know how people respond to this. Yeah. And where I'm from, the South Wales Valleys, for instance, um, if you know anything about kind of British politics, you'll know that the, the mine closures in the 80s, mm-hmm. there were entire communities in Wales that constructed their entire identity around being a coal miner. Mm-hmm. It was a highly skilled, well-paid job where men could provide for their families. They felt amazing doing that. And they lost that. And th- those communities those areas have never recovered since and you see immense drug use you see immense depression just 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 appalling circumstances we're still felt to this day and so i'm quite scared that in the near term with automation we'll see this if you Mm. think of the the millions of, of truck drivers taxi drivers a lot of these occupied by men who are providing for their families if that's taken from them and they're not if they can't easily find maybe even another job to replace that never mind full automation it might be really, really tough for a lot of people out there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I I come back to the idea of is full automation something that we necessarily want to seek if it can be if it can be slowed down, if not stopped. I think. But, but, uh, but, yeah, but to some degree, that would assume we have a say in the matter, a choice. Of course, of course. Uh, as you said, free markets. You know, if if one yeah. company becomes much, much more profitable with automation. It's the most natural thing in the world that other companies will have no choice but to follow suit. They'll have a legal obligation to their shareholders to mm. maximize profitability. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I mean, like I'm, like I said, I'm not a purebred anything. I know if I were like 100%, sorry, if I were a 100% pure libertarian, I'd be like, no government, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like, uh, I operate very much in reality. So when it comes to any sort of political thing, I look at it issue by issue, right? So yeah. Technically, according to complete free market capitalism, it would be fine if Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon all join forces to form one huge company. And I'm like, no, that's obviously a terrible <laughs> idea. You know, that's obviously a, a yeah. horrible idea. It's interesting with politics, actually. Like I was thinking about this the other day. I think what I dislike is massive centralization of power. Yeah. So I don't think, so I think people who are typically more conservative or right-wing are pro-smaller government. They don't want the government to centralize and have too much power. People who are more traditionally left-wing don't want the corporations to grow too big and become too monopolistic and too powerful. And I actually think both of those are right. I'm just like, too big, too powerful is something to worry about. It doesn't matter to me if that's a government, if that's a private company, if it's too big and it's monopolistic and it can kind of just do what it wants, then I think the long term people are going to suffer and you're going to get worse products because, you know, you're not going to get the competition and everything like that that you want. I mean, the the free market kind of stops working, really. Absolutely. I I really wish people would would approach policy from a more evidence-driven, pragmatic standpoint versus being so heavily married to their ideology. Yeah, Because as you said, someone can instantly approach things from their radical left-wing perspective, radical right-wing perspective. But it just seems such a great waste to me that around the world, we have so many 
we have so many policies and examples of where different things have worked and haven't worked. And I wish people would be more willing to, to go with that. That's one thing that frustrates me quite a lot about the discourse in America, because mm. I feel like all these topics, whether it's gun rights, healthcare, people talk in hypotheticals as if there isn't an entire world out there that actually does these things already. That's true. You know, when people have the, the gun debate, uh, whether whether they have guns, are people safe with or without, you have evidence everywhere that you can look at to, to figure this out. Mm. Why don't you actually look around instead of being just married to your ideology and just thinking because you're strictly a libertarian, you should have this particular view. Yeah, I, That's one thing that I find immensely frustrating. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, for instance, I'm not particularly passionate either way about the gun debate. I have no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. But to me, it, it, talking in this concept of freedom uh, and w in which circumstances people are actually freer, my personal opinion, and some people might be horrendously offended by this watching this, I feel people in the UK are freer with, with less likelihood of being shot than they are from the fact that they, they're not free because they can't own a gun, if that makes sense. I think in that respect, I, my freedom is more enhanced from being less likely to be shot than my freedom is inhibited just because I can't technically own a gun that I can walk around with. Yeah. And so in that case, from a libertarian perspective, I would say people are freer in the UK than they are in America, where unfortunately, every single year, many people have kids who walk to school who end up getting gunned down. Mm. Yeah, no, I, that's a, that's an interesting one for me because... I grew up with a lot of Americans and I know a lot of Americans and I know I've got family members in America who own guns and are very pro-gun and whatnot, you know, and, and even some of my personal friends. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating one because it, it's so much based on the history of America. So I'm not sure if you're aware. I mean, you, you might be. That, I mean, the whole idea of the right to bear arms, loads of people think it's purely about self-defense, but it's also to defend against a tyrannical government. So that's kind of the core component. So the idea is that the USA, obviously, they had the, they were ruled by a tyrannical government, i.e., the British Empire, <laughs> and they, and they, I mean, the entire country was founded by them rebelling against the British Empire and being able to bear arms and essentially overthrowing them and gaining their own freedom. So they've kind of got that embedded in their society that. A government can become tyrannical. I mean, which which it can. I mean, you look at the 20th century, and it's it's not like it's a completely crazy, paranoid concept because you did see it in the Soviet Union. You did see yeah. it in Germany. So the idea of a government going off the handle, you know, starting to attack or kill or harm its own citizens, when you're in a peacetime, when, you know, in our lifetimes, it sounds a bit far-fetched and silly, but then you look back at history and you're like, okay, it can happen. So on that concept, I do very much understand why, why people stick very hard to their gun rights because they think, okay, the government confiscates the guns and then now forever, we don't get those back. And if the government ever does fly off the handle we have absolutely no recourse. So I can understand that as well, especially as someone who's not anti-government, but a bit skeptical and slightly distrusting of it. Sure. And, and, and actually, I heard a very, very interesting theory, which I, I'm kind of in agreement with, actually. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is that the rest of the world benefits from America's gun laws because of that point, because 
Because if any country around the world, never mind just the US government, if any country around the world went full tyrannical, we all know that America would step in. Mm. And so in that sense, you could say we're the beneficiaries of that, even though unfortunately because of that, maybe people get more gun deaths in America. It allows the rest of the world to actually live in a gun-free environment because of that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting concept. Like like most of these debates, it's one of those things that people tend to try to oversimplify. And I think a lot of times, I think if you live in the UK or in Europe in general, it's very easy to look at America and just go, oh, this is silly. Just ban the guns. It seems a very obvious thing if you don't really have the context of the history and the whole idea of a tyrannical government. But when you think of it from that perspective, it becomes a lot more complicated and you can completely see why people are like, no, this is this is literally written into our founding documents, just like the freedom of speeches. So sure. just like people stick to their guns hard on freedom of speech, again, you've got people who think that freedom of speech is a, a bad thing, um, who I'd very strongly disagree with. But, no, um, and, and if I could just step in there, actually, because I want to make a what's for me a really important point is that unfortunately right now, it seems like the certain sectors of the left are actually the enemies of free speech at the moment, which for me is terrifying. And it's something that I actually quite struggle to grasp. They seem almost alien to me when you see mm. these these kind of SJW types on Twitter where there was actually a long time where I thought that the people on the right were just painting them out as some kind of caricature, that these people <laughs> didn't actually exist because I thought, no way are there people actually this mad. And they weren't in my life. But then I saw eventually on Twitter oh my gosh, these people actually do exist. They're real people. It is real. And, and, and I can't even understand. I just can't even understand it. As someone who identifies more towards the left anyway, it's just crazy to me. Yeah, it is bizarre. I mean, last year I had somebody, well, I've been called all kinds of things down to being down, down to being called a, a Nazi and a white supremacist, which is, which is hilarious, <laughs> That's quite which, funny. which is hilarious. Like I, I, I had a white guy call me a white supremacist and I was wow. just like, bro, the reason I was called that didn't even have anything to do remotely with that topic. Like it was just this, I disagree with you. So you must be the worst thing ever. Like, it doesn't matter if you're black, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I was just like, that's wow, incredible, isn't it? Is that, is that far gone? And then I had someone else. This was actually um, one of the student presidents here in the UK, at a UK university said that literally I almost I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but pretty much quote people like myself are dangerous and regressive and have ideas that get people killed and people like Zuby should not be allowed to speak on university campuses. Ah. Uh, see, that's not good, is it? Right. And that was from a student union president. And again, this was just after a discussion on Facebook where I happened to disagree with him on this notion of free speech. Yeah. And that that was I was literally defending the free speech position and trying to explain why it's so important, especially at a university. I mean, yeah, you know, like, it should be somewhat self-evident that at a university, people are going to get their ideas challenged. Um, so this notion that I'm some kind of like, I don't own, I don't have a single, the most like controversial view I probably have is that I think the tax rate should be flat, right? That's okay. The, that's probably yep. that's probably like my most controversial political view is that I think there's a very strong fairness <laughs> case for a flat tax rate because yeah. I don't think it's fair that the percentage 
the chunk that goes out just grows and grows and grows. I mean, you've got people saying rich people should be taxed at 70% or 80% or even 90%. And I'm just kind of like, I'm not making that money, but I don't see how one can morally justify taking 70% of another person's income, assuming that they've legally made it, right? Like forget about the practical aspects or the idea that they might flee to another country, but just morally, I'm just like, that. that's not right. Like if anyone else did that, it would be called theft, right? If the government does it, then- Yeah, it was, it was that <laughs> Alexandria Cortez, wasn't it? She's proposed that 70% marginal tax rate on more than 10 million. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. But she's not even the first. I mean, there are lots of people who think that there should be a cap on how much you can earn. And I don't think these people even understand how economics and money basically works. I mean, people say that and I'm like, how can you limit how much someone can earn? Like that doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Like, well, like, even from a left-wing perspective, that doesn't really, that's not really a great idea because the more someone earns, the more tax they pay, which goes into public services anyway. I think once you get past, I think 50% is way too high, but I think once you get past 50%, like it just doesn't compute to me anymore. Yeah. I, I think taxing income in itself is wrong, especially if it's the product of someone's labor. Mm. Um, one thing I would do, again, this is when people might be surprised, even as someone who identifies quite strongly in the left, I would reduce income tax rates for most people because I think it's wrong that you should get up in the morning, work several hours just to give a bunch of that to the government or whoever else. Mm. I would be much more in favor of, and this word is tricky, but something like a land value tax, which again is is... I think Milton Friedman described it as the least unfair type of tax, because at least that way you're you're taxing something which isn't so strongly related to just labor and someone's hard work. It's more benefiting from the world and from kind of nature's resources, mm. if that makes sense. No, it does. It does make sense. I think income tax. Yeah, I think I'm I'm pretty much with you there. The one I really really think is just outright outright theft is um, inheritance tax. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a friend who thinks it should be 100%. <laughs> so we, we definitely don't see eye to eye on that one. Cause I think that's, I think that's nuts. Um, it is and- tricky though, because I think most people acknowledge that something has to change that some way, I, some measure has to be made before life just becomes intolerable for the average working person. When mm. you factor in all this, you know, increasing automation, house prices continue to go up. And this is something which you've seen me tweet about quite often. Mm-hmm. The, the, the ratio between someone's income and house prices just continues to climb and climb and climb. You've gone from three to one average ratio to about eight to one now, and that just continues to climb. But if something isn't done soon, life itself will just be unaffordable the sheer basics for your average person mm-hmm. and so you have to figure out well okay what is there to do if that is the case yeah i think with the housing i mean i can only talk to the uk i'm i'm far from an expert but i look at things very economically and it comes down to supply and demand and with housing it seems like you've got all these regulations which make it i mean i'm sure there are loads of businessmen capitalists who would love to build a ton of houses in the UK yeah. if you let them. But it seems like on my very, I'm not an expert, on my very basic looking at it, it seems like there's lots of regulations and policy and whatnot that make this very difficult. So if you're going to limit the supply of housing, and then you're going to have the population increasing by X percent every year, whether that's through birth or through immigration primarily at the moment, then 
the prices are going to go up. Like that's very basic economics. So to yeah. me, I look at it on the supply side. People need to build more houses. Like there need to be there needs to be more housing. I mean, you look at somewhere like London, and it's just it's ridiculous, right? The population is just growing and growing and growing, but there's very few new houses each year compared to how many more thousands and thousands of people are pouring into the city. So I'm very much more in favor of that sort of deregulation and making it easier for people to step in and create and build what needs to be created and built rather than this notion of punishing people who are already rich or wealthy. I'm not like completely anti-tax. I'm aware that some things need to be uh, publicly funded and I think it's good that they are. But these people are already paying, as you alluded to earlier, some of them like millions a year in tax. I just think it's deeply unfair if someone is making money to then, okay, they're passing away and they want to give the money to their children or to whoever. And then you're going to step in again on money that you've probably already taxed three or four times and then just take another wedge. I just don't know how that one is, how that one is justified. I feel like there's certainly better ways of doing things that are more moral basically yeah and, and the thing is the other dimension to this if we bring things almost full circle back to bitcoin let's do it um tax revenue in itself um government will have a real tough time funding itself in the future when people have access to privacy coins and completely anonymous cryptocurrencies the government will not be able to trace what people's incomes are they will not be able to assess it or test it uh, if people if they do launch an investigation into someone and there's nothing they can do to force people to pay taxes mm. if, if it's done on a mass scale. And this is what does concern me to some extent as someone who's left-wing, who does care passionately about things like the NHS. I really do believe that socialized healthcare in the UK is one of our kind of shining, crowning glories. Mm -hmm. But that's going to be very, very, very difficult to sustain in the future where people have full sovereignty over their money. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer to that is either. It is, it is complicated. And I think... It gets more complicated when people are not willing to have these discussions and have them honestly and have them seriously. You know, whatever side of the argument someone is coming from, they'll just go into their little echo chamber. Of yeah. Everybody who everybody who already agrees with me and sees things from this one direction, and then anyone who sees anything any other way is the worst thing imaginable and is evil and is this and is that and again this is a it's it's a it's a problem you know people need to be able to talk openly like people ask me why i think free speech is important and non-censorship is important and this whole idea of an idea free market and to me it's it's really because of this stuff and you can you can do it with any issue okay immigration understandably people get touchy and emotional when they talk about immigration or immigration policy. So it makes it really difficult to, for people, you know, whether it's people who are in power or people who aren't in power, to just sit down and have a very honest discussion about it. Because people are so quick to label or demonize the other side, and then nothing gets done. And yeah. I think that's a big reason why you're seeing, particularly in Europe, why you're seeing this rise of right-wing populism in particular because it's like okay no one else is even trying to 
talk about or address these issues. At least these guys are going to, they're going to at least talk about it, right? They're, they're saying something, okay? They're saying something. And I think this is an important issue. So people are shifting in that direction. And again, people seem to be like, oh, why is, why is this going on? Why did he get elected? Why did he get elected? And I'm kind of there, like trying to connect the dots for people. And uh, yeah, it gets frustrating sometimes for me because I feel like I see it quite clearly. I know personally, I really avoid being in any kind of echo chamber. I think it's impossible for me because I'm a musician. So musicians generally lean very heavily left, liberal, whatever. Whereas I'm more, I don't like to label myself politically, but I'm certainly more to the right than most musicians. So yeah, it it just gets, it gets difficult. I mean, you saw the exact same thing in 2016 with America. And I look at Trump very much, like regardless of what someone thinks of him, I look at him very much as a as a symptom, not the cause. Yeah, okay, 100%, so, 100%. Right? So yeah, it's like you guys were already getting divided. X, Y, and Z was already going on. People were already playing identity politics and people were already getting sick of it when you just kept going. I mean, you're, they're still going. They're just doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. If I'm trying to discuss something and someone is someone's arguing with the fact that I'm male rather than what I'm actually saying, then it's like, how are we meant to move forward here? It's just, it's such a huge step backwards. And I really remember when it was not a thing at all. Like, I mean, I, I finished university 10, 11 years ago, and I, yeah. don't, I don't remember any of this being a thing. I don't remember anyone ever saying, you're a privileged white male, or I'm a person of color, so X or Y. It's, it's like, this is new. Yeah. Uh, this, 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 all this stuff is very new. And, you know, it's something that loads of people have commented on, but I just find it so bizarre. I think it's, I, I, it's, people call it progressive. And to me, it's just such a huge step backwards <laughs> that, I find, that I find it hilarious that the people who peddle this call themselves progressives and even social justice warriors. Cause <laughs> like the whole term social justice, I'm kind of like, we just need, like, I find that even the term bizarre. Cause I'm like, I'm very pro justice. But so like justice doesn't need a, it doesn't need a, (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't need a modifier, right? If you've got justice, you've got justice. If you start trying to factor in all this intersectionality crap of like, okay, well, how old is this person? Are they disabled? What skin, what color skin do they have? What gender are they? What's their sexuality? And you start trying to factor these things into like justice. I'm like, that's a perversion of justice. Either the idea is good or it's bad or they're right, or they're wrong, or they did a crime, or they didn't do a crime, and you're just trying to complicate it with all this stuff. It's, uh, yeah, I find it very annoying, personally. Yeah. So, so I have a question for you, then, Zuby. For, the, it, for the next, um, say, 10 years, do you think the situation is going to get worse or better? Um, what we're talking about right now, and the kind of general... Yeah, it, it can be as broad of a question as you like, maybe in terms of the economy, just just everything, this rise in populism that you say you've witnessed. Do you think we, we've reached peak or do you think things are much worse is to come? I That's a good question. It's, it's tricky. I, I do flip-flop on it a little bit. I'm an optimist by nature, so I think in the long term, it will get better. I do, looking at the current scenario... I do think it'll get worse because people keep doubling down and people aren't just, you know, taking their heads out the sand and being reasonable. I think it will continue to get worse up to a point, 
but I almost think in some aspects, it'll probably get so bad that the average person, like right now, I think the average person isn't even really that aware of lots of the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think when it starts really affecting the average person, so say, for example, someone like yourself, like you don't need a job, but say that you were applying for a job and you essentially got turned away on the basis of being a white male, shall we say. Okay. Like if that started happening to people on any kind of scale, I think the average person would wake up and be like, wait, this is, this is BS. Like, yeah. this, this is not right. But I think that it might need to go. Another, another good example is you've now got, you've now got biological men in sports competing against women. Yeah, I've I've seen okay. instances of that. Yeah, exactly. So if you've now if that becomes a popular thing, and biological men start breaking the female records and breaking female bones in the boxing ring or the MMA ring or whatever, then at some point the average reasonable person needs to go. Wait, no, this is not this is not right. This it can't go it can't go this far. Right? This isn't. This isn't about being intolerant or any kind of bigotry or anything like that. It's it, in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's just saying no. This is this is not reasonable. There's a reason you separate men and there's a reason you separate men's and women's sports. Like that's not a that should not be a controversial statement. There's a reason why you do it. So if you're gonna start, you know, scrambling that up by letting Usain Bolt identify as a woman and come back and start crushing all the female Olympians. Someone needs to go. No, like no, <laughs> you know that's not that's yeah. not there. That's not that's not right. I don't know if you've seen in um, you know, Harvard currently has a lawsuit because they're penalizing students for being Asian, and they're making oh really it, yeah. They're the Asians there are doing so well, and so many of them are getting admitted that they've started discrimination. They've started discriminating against them to the point that if you're an Asian student, you now need higher grades in the entrance exams to get into certain universities. Wow. And there's currently ongoing lawsuits about this because people are saying, no, this is literally racial discrimination by definition. You can't make it harder for someone or easier for someone purely based on their race, not even on socioeconomic class or anything like that, just purely based on their race with stuff like that. That's when it's clearly gone too far. You know, I think the average normal person who's not even interested in all this stuff would be like, no, that's that's not fair. Like that's not yeah. right. So I think it might get a little bit crazier, but um, I think it will swing back to a normal, happy center. And yeah, <laughs> I think it'll happen. I don't know how many years, how many cycles. I've I've already said if it if it all goes too mental, then I'll probably just uh bounce to <laughs> some bounce to some country where nobody will bother me. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've still, I've, I've got my Nigerian passport, so I can always go back to, uh, <laughs> I can always go to Nigeria where people are typically just like normal and yeah. not need to worry about all that. But we'll see. I think it'll get a little bit worse, but long-term I am optimistic that we'll return to a happy medium where we've been before, where people can have disagreements without hating each other, without demonizing each other. And it's just... It's just normal. And I'm also optimistic because I think that people are starting to, again, like we're having this conversation, people are recognizing it. You know what I mean? So yeah. 
I've been personally sounding the alarm bells on some of this stuff for about three or four years, and people didn't really see it. Um, we both spend a lot of time online. So as people who do that, you can see it more. But I think in the real world, you don't see it so much. So I think someone sometimes someone has to get stung before they realize what's going on. Let me give you another good example. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I'm a professional musician. And I don't know if you know, in the UK at the moment, they've got this big scheme going on to try to make uh, the majority of UK music festivals 50-50 gender split in, term, in terms of their lineup by, I think, 2021. That's incredible. Okay. Think about hip hop. Think about metal. Think about EDM. How are you going to achieve a 50-50 gender split? on the lineups without yeah. massively, massively discriminating against men. Is that even possible? I don't think so, no. No. I, I think those instances are incredibly frustrating because it completely disregards people's free choice and inclinations. Mm. This is something we've seen in crypto as well. People have this discussion. If you look at my viewership on YouTube right now, I have about, I would say, 96% male viewership. Mm -hmm. And this is just YouTube. You know, anyone is free to watch my free content, and I, I don't make sexist jokes or anything. No. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, people are naturally ninety six percent of my audience are men. Yeah, and you Look, just have to respect people's gravitations. Exactly. I mean, pursuing freedom of choice and equality of opportunity, and also equality of outcome, is impossible because they're yeah. op they're opposite goals. If you give people choice, they're going to make they're going to make different decisions. And lo and behold, I know this is deeply controversial in 2019, but men and women are different and are generally interested in quite different things, which is okay. Yeah. So trying to sort of shoehorn or force these things, you know, you're not going to get 50% of nursery workers to be male. No. Without, without, without some huge social engineering or, you know, giving men like a 500% payment bonus, it's just not gonna. It's not gonna happen. You're not gonna get fifty percent of primary school teachers being male. You're not gonna get fifty percent of nurses being male, and you're not gonna get fifty percent of construction workers or roofers being female. So <laughs> yeah. it's it, it's just bizarre to me because it it's so it's so obvious. And sometimes I'll say one of these things, and someone will actually like try to interject with an argument, and I'm just like, it's this isn't. There's loads of things that we can debate, but. To me, it's just such a, it's so obvious. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's obvious. And, and it's not a problem. Like, I think sometimes people want to solve a problem that doesn't exist because people will say it must be this, it must be that. And I'm like, why? Why is it a problem that 80% of this heavy metal lineup, okay, probably 95% is male. Probably 80% of the 70% of the attendees might be male as well. I'm like, why is that a problem? If I go to a little mix concert, should I expect fifty percent? <laughs> should I expect fifty percent males in the audience or on the stage? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. So, and it's fine. Like, just let people do what they want to do. Like, this should not be. It should. It really shouldn't be controversial. And I just find it. I find it quite hilarious that it is, and it's kind yeah. of fun because I can trigger people by saying stuff that's really basic and shouldn't be controversial. As I said, I think people will see the light. I feel I think that's one lesson I've really learned over the past two years. If you want to take the nature versus nurture debate on things, I think I used to gravitate slightly more towards the kind of nurturing societal conditioning thing. 
But more and more over the years, I feel like I really respected the power of biology. Mm. And it's such an incredibly powerful force that I do think explains much of the differences you see between the sexes. It's huge. And there's no getting around it. Yeah. Are you around any little kids? No. Okay. I've got nine nieces and nephews. And when people suggest this idea that boys and girls are just the same i'm just like no <laughs> like, <laughs> like 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 they're they're really not like you, you can look at them at like the age of by the age of two yeah. the, be- the behaviors are they're so different they're so different you know there's there's huge similarities there's a huge overlap and each person's an individual but you know you can you could go someone could go to a nursery and just observe how the boys behave and how the girls behave and it's like no, these are not the same thing. Yeah. And by and by that age, you can't really say, "Oh, they've been they've been socialized by years and years of this." It's like, no, they haven't. You know, they, yeah. they really haven't. I mean, they've even shown. I don't know if you're aware of this, like really interesting stuff. Like female babies spend considerably longer looking at people's faces. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and baby boys respond more quickly to movement. So if you move an object in their peripheral vision, they're more quick to move their heads and look at it. Right. Wow. Um, girls also tend to develop verbal skills, being able to talk, being able to express themselves quite a lot quicker. And then, yeah, I mean, you, you, you see it play out. I mean, if you want to say teen, teenage boys and teenage girls, they don't behave the same way. Men and women don't behave, you know, and, and it's fine. It's good. I'm like, it's good. That's the it thing with me. Should I'm, celebrated, I'm, I'm, literally, I'm literally like, it's good, right? I, I don't want, I don't like, I don't want my girlfriend to be like me. No, <laughs> I, mean, like, <laughs> I don't. I don't want my girlfriend to be like me and act like me and be built like me. And it's just like, no. Generally speaking, the female strengths compensate for the male weaknesses, and vice versa. So Absolutely. you put you put the two together, and lo and behold. It works. I mean, it's gotten us. It's gotten us this far. <laughs> so, yeah. so we've done all right, haven't we? Yeah, we know, like we're we're all here. So. It's, a, it's a terrible shame that masculinity is perceived in such a toxic manner yeah. right now. It, it's very sad. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole another convo. I, I've yeah. had some, <laughs> I've had some podcasts where that's been the where that's been the main topic. A lot of this stuff, though, like I said, it might just need to reach a reach a, a peak of stupidity shall i say before it just kind of comes crashing down and people are like i don't know i I often joke that people will look back in 10 years and either be like oh gosh that's when it started yeah yeah (laughs) or or they'll look back and be like what were we thinking like what was that about you know what my my inclination is always to go towards kind of economics okay and and i think for me what it would take is unfortunately i think we're on a road towards the most severe global financial crisis of our times, Mm. which could possibly lead to a a war, unfortunately. And I think the outcome of that will be so tremendously negative, so horrendous that at that point, people will almost kind of forget about the petty differences on Twitter. Uh, Mm. Again, if you look back at the 20th century, you had the, the 30s and 40s were so horrendous. And then by the 60s, things were nice again. You had all hippie love. And I think, I think it might play out in a similar way again, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah it's actually a, quite a dark thing that I was thinking about the other day. But I think something important to be aware of is that one good thing about looking at history is that, well, obviously to learn from the mistakes people have already made and the good things people have already done. But also 
just to do some soul searching and realize that as stable and peaceful and relatively happy as we all are here in the modern Western world, you know, human beings are human beings and are capable of great good and great evil. So all the atrocities that have happened in the past or that are even still going on in some other foreign countries, I think we always need to just be vigilant that those things can happen again. I imagine that in the early 1930s in Germany, people were not thinking like, oh, like we're capable of doing this or our government is capable of doing this. And then, you know, obviously you look at what happened during and after World War II. That's always the weird one to me. Like we're look, looking at World War II because looking at the two of the countries that did some of the worst stuff, right? Germany and Japan. I don't know how much you've looked into the crap Japan got up to, but I find it really weird because those are two countries where both in terms of their nations overall, but also the individuals I've met from them are just so chill. Yeah. Right? They're, they're so chill. So like I've been to Germany loads of times and I'm just like, how the F did you guys do this? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, Ginger, but you know, you know what no, I mean? It's not... Absolutely. And, and the Japanese, <laughs> you think of Japanese as being such tranquil, respectable yeah. people. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know too much. I read about the comfort girls with the Korean girls yeah. in Japan and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know too much other. Okay. There, there's some really dark stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. You might not, you might not actually want to look into it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's that bad. It's that yeah. bad. Um, but yeah, it's it's just bizarre. I'm just like, how you're reading something and you're like, this sounds like it's out of a horror movie. You're yeah. like, how did how were people doing this like on mass? And you know, you have to think like these weren't just necessarily crazy psychotic people. I mean, they couldn't have been like it was so many people involved. It's like yeah. you can't you can't all be psychopaths. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they couldn't all yeah. have been. Like, some of them were just normal people who got possessed by something. So. This this is one instance where I will kind of support the SJW somewhat because if you look at even though they're so ridiculous to conflate the MAGA hat with Nazism or something, mm-hmm. if you do look at the 1930s, it was they didn't just go to the Holocaust; they were kind no. of small incremental steps. And so I can see why people would be tempted to kind of iron that behavior out from the get go when you see mm-hmm. something something quite dark and quite scary. Mm-hmm. But I, I think. On the other hand, they might have taken things way too far, way too soon. I yeah. Think. Do you know what I think they've done, which is, I think, more dangerous, is that they've been running around calling people Nazis and white supremacists for such a long time, normally without any reason nor evidence, that they've diluted those terms. Like, I'll be honest with you. These days, when I hear someone say racist, I, my brain automatically thinks like it's probably someone calling Wolf. Yeah, or, or Brexit voter, isn't it? You just think, oh, people say oh, Brexit voter racist. It's that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, what's the evidence? Yeah. Okay. So even when someone's like, Donald Trump is a white supremacist, and I'm like, on what basis? Okay, you don't need to like the guy. There's plenty of criticisms for him. But if someone says something, like that's an extremely strong accusation. Like that really means something. So if you're yeah. going to say that, I'm like, what are you saying that based on? If that's the case, like, you know, I'm a black guy. I'm like, I, I need to worry, right? You know, if, <laughs> if, if, there's, if, there's legitimately, if, there's, if there's legitimately a rise of the KKK coming. Oh, absolutely. Then, yeah. You know, I, I need to be concerned. But if you're just going to call a little kid, you know, a 16-year-old boy in a MAGA hat, a, a Nazi and a white supremacist when he's not, then you've got no other words to use to describe the real ones. 
Yeah, and then, I mean? and then, like, and then it's, it's boy who cried wolf then, isn't it? Exactly, it? exactly. That's the thing, because it's like, I don't know, like, I don't even know what far right means anymore. Like, yeah. I know what, I know what it's, <laughs> I know what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. I know what it's supposed to mean, but if I'm looking at a paper and they're calling this person far right, this person far right, that person far right, there's people who I know personally who have been called far right in the media. And I'm like, they're not far right at all. Some of them are yeah. liberals. Some of them are actually liberals. You can't just keep throwing out these terms because if an actual far right party comes in Britain or in Germany or in Austria or whatever, like, what are you going to call them? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like people need to be aware of like, okay, no, this is, this is a serious concern. A, a good example is, um, I don't know if you know, like Brazil has a new president now. Yes. Yeah. He, okay. he scares me a lot. Okay. Well, with him, they called him the Trump of Brazil. They called him far right. They called him like loads of different things in the media. And I'm kind of like, okay, first of all, those two things are, are pretty different because D- Donald Trump is not far right. Okay. Yeah. Like he's not. So in fact, funny thing with Donald Trump, isn't he the first president who actually took his presidency already supporting gay marriage, for example? Yeah. Kind of funny, right? Obama didn't support gay marriage when he was elected. So it's like, you know, I, I don't live in Brazil, right? So I don't, I don't really know the situation. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, is he, is he really far right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or is he far right to the people who think Trump is far right? And those are really different things. So it's like, you know, you start confusing people. And like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of all these terms anymore. You know I, I don't mean? think anyone does. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's someone out there who thinks I'm far right. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, no. <laughs> so No, you're just like, a white supremacist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> obviously, obviously. I don't know what gave it away, man. It must be the melanin. Yeah, man. Anyway, bro, we've been we've been going for a while now, but it's been um it's been a really dope podcast. Do you have uh anything anything coming up in the next couple of months or anything this year that uh we should be keeping a lookout for? Uh, not so much. No, I'll just be at it with the regular videos. So if anyone here wants to learn a little bit more about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency investing, they can check out my channel, uh, Lewis Thomas. Lewis spelled the funny way, like Louis, so L-O-U-I-S. And uh, you'll find me there. I post several times a week. Awesome. Make sure you check out Lewis and people can follow you on Twitter as well. What's your handle? Lewis Thomas YT, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I you believe- just find me. I-, I talk mainly about crypto, but I'll talk about the kind of wider economy at times as well. Yeah, man. No, definitely make sure you check out his videos. He's got a really good perspective on a lot of stuff. And I have certainly learned a lot about crypto from his channel. Really good to talk to you, Lewis. Uh, thanks, Ubi. And I wish you all the best with crypto in the future as well. I hope you get to see, I hope you get to experience what it's like to make bad gains. Because <laughs> yeah. honestly, there's, there's no feeling like it, man. Trust me. I haven't, made, I haven't made a gain yet. You'll do it. That's all, man. Talk soon. <laughs> Cheers, Ubi. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.